0: I've heard this story so many times. Heard lots of sermons on it. Heard people talk about it, sing about it. But I've come to the conclusion that there's always another perspective on almost every story. There surely is in every scene or witness of an accident. Every story is different, even though it's the same accident. So it is with this story. And the reason... I believe that this story has particular relevance for us at this time is because we don't get to hear the rest of the story. We don't get to hear what happens next. We don't know the mindset of the older brother, whether it changes, whether the son who comes home is actually changed, or his father just welcomes him because he's so happy to see his son. We don't know those answers. But I do know this, that when I saw a different way of looking at this passage this week, it made me almost sit bolt right up and say, oh my, we need to talk about this. And this is the time to do so. I was going to hold off for Easter But this last Tuesday at the pastor's meeting, they were talking about this passage, and I took that as a sign, go ahead and do this now. It's also in our lectionary reading for today, uh, which is another surprise to me. But I want to give you a little bit of background so you know why this story is being told. The tax collectors and sinners drew near to Jesus to listen to Him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, those holy rollers who knew everything about God and how to Follow the law and the fence laws, were there and complaining, saying, This man is welcoming sinners and he eats with them, bringing shame on himself, making himself unclean. And Jesus tells them three parables, one after the other. The first one is about a man who has a hundred sheep and one goes lost, and he leaves the ninety and nine to find the one. And he rejoices when he finds the one. The second story is about the parable of the lost coin, where a woman has lost a coin after having ten silver coins. She loses one, and she sweeps the house and diligently searches until she finds it. And once she finds it, she says, Rejoice, because I found what I lost. In verse 10, Before this passage, right before, is a transition verse that we don't often read with this passage. And we should. It says this, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now I want you to hear the mindset of the scribes and the Pharisees as they watch Jesus eating with known sinners. They're thinking, he should not make himself unclean. He's bringing shame to himself, dishonor. Jesus is violating the moral and ethical code of their society, and therefore he's richly unclean, and he can't do that. Here's what we miss in that story if we don't think about their mindset. Jesus is eating with known sinners. Not to make Himself unclean, which is what they're thinking about is their own piety, but they're not thinking about the sinners who need clean. Who need God. They're not looking at them going, thank God He went to them. Because the scribes and Pharisees would not ever... Make themselves unclean associating with them. They would lose their reputation. They wouldn't be able to tell people what to do because they would be unclean. They do not think about the sinful people, they think about their own personal holiness and Jesus' personal holiness like that's what matters most. <laughs> And so, that's when Jesus uses that transition verse that there's more joy over one sinner who repents. Now, wouldn't it be worth it if Jesus made Himself richly unclean, according to their laws, not according to Scripture, and had a thousand different guests over, and He was a guest at a thousand different homes of known sinners, and one came to know Him. Came home to God came home to know God and said, heavenly Father. Would that be worth it for one? Would it? Would it be worth it for one to come home? According to this, if you have a hundred and you lose one and you get one, one's worth it. You have ten coins, you lose one, and you find it, one's worth it. Let's do the math. Ten coins, a hundred sheep, I'm thinking a thousand sinners. You're multiplying by ten each time. As the story transfers and parables keep going, it divides by ten. Well, guess what? By the time we get to the story of the prodigal son, we just have two people in the story, two brothers. And 50% of them mess up. And 50% come back. Should be celebration, shouldn't there? Shouldn't the scribes and Pharisees be celebrating that Jesus is ministering and bringing into the kingdom of God those folks? You'd think so. And I think the reason we understand why that's important is because that's our task here. The marginalized, those on the fringes of society, we believe they can be a part of the kingdom of God just as certainly as anybody else. People who feel like they don't belong are rejected, judged, and don't even like church. We believe they're worth it. And that matters. That matters a lot because it affects what you think and what you do. Now, I want you to think about this. In James, it says, There is no shadow of turning with God. All the good and perfect gifts come from Him, with whom there is no variableness, if you will, or shadow of turning. And uh, I don't really like the way that that says it because um, it's confusing. It doesn't show the power of that statement. But let me put it to you this way. Today, if you go outside, it's a sunny day, you can do this on a sunny day, and look up at the sun, how many shadows are you going to see on the sun? Why aren't you going to see any shadows on the sun? It's because it's light. It's the source of the light. The source of the light does not get shadows. It creates light. And there's no shadows in it. So certainly, as the sunshine is not in a shadow, because it makes the light, so is God the same way. He is not going to change, but be light. There's no darkness there. Well, maybe the other side of the sun has a shadow. Maybe only one side is, you know, putting out the light and the other side isn't. We know that's not true, even though we haven't seen it, because we know it's round. It's a big ball of gas, and it's continuously burning throughout our lifetimes and before and after us. The sun gives light even when it is dark here at night because we're not in the sun's light, the sun is still giving off light. There is no shadow of it turning to darkness because it continues to give off light. Now, if you look at Scripture real carefully, light and love are very similar. And so when you say there is no shadow of turning with God, it means He's love and light. And when you look at Him, you won't see any darkness. We're not used to that kind of thing either. But there's nothing in God to make Him not act outside of love. He is love. God's not having a bad day. (laughs) Not going to take it out on you. He's not going, you know, if you wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have done that, but you did that. God's not like that. He doesn't think darkness and retribution and retaliation. He's light. There is no darkness. No matter how many times you look into the sun, there is no darkness. It's the same way with God. But we don't understand that. It is incomprehensible to anybody who has lived any time at all on this earth to think that there's something that doesn't have a shadow side. We talk about the dark side of the moon. We talk about the dark side of people. You never know what someone might do if they're pushed far enough, right? There's always a shadow. We even quote clichés to make sure that we understand nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. Haven't you heard that? No, well, nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. Well, what if you never did? What if you were perfect? Then you wouldn't have any mistakes. Then you'd be walking in perfection by what you do. And there would be no, shall we say, dark actions based on wickedness or evil within you by what you've done. Now, here's the thing. God has never done anything wicked or evil either. But it isn't because of what He's done or not done. It's because of who He is. He is light. And no darkness can ever come close to Him. He'll obliterate it. If you got within 100 feet of the sun, you're not going to get within 100 feet of the sun. You can't approach it. Same way with God. No darkness stays in the presence of God. What He sees and what comes to Him is made manifest, says the Scripture. becomes light. But we look at our own lives, and we each know that we are not perfect in all that we do. There are times when we're not loving, or we've gotten angry, and sinned, or made mistakes, or character defects came out. And we know this. And so, because we understand it's true about us, we also believe the same is true about everyone else. The common temptations of this world fall on everybody, and everybody, one time or another, Gives in. Messes up. We understand this. We understand that there is not another person on this planet who hasn't made a mistake besides Jesus. And so we come to the conclusion, or at least I think most of us would, that what true, is true for me is true for everyone else that I don't love completely. Completely. And when I give, I can't give completely. And when I live for God, I can't do it perfectly and completely. There's always something that's in the way. Whatever that thing is, right? After all, 1 Corinthians 13 we read last week talks about love. That it holds no records of wrong. I'm already out of the ballpark there. I do hold records of wrong sometimes. And sometimes I do give up. Because it says love never quits, never fails. Never holds against, always believes, always hopes, always trusts. I, I'm I'm off the list already. Are you? I'll bet you are, and I don't have to wager to make that bet because I know you are off that list of being perfect in love. And so we relegate this. This First Corinthians love is a love that we can't do. Only God can, and if we're gonna do it, the Holy Spirit has to do it, and we don't always listen to Him. And so it becomes one of those things where we get a little frustrated when people say, well, you ought to, you know, just love like Jesus does. Do what He did. Well, sometimes our emotions get in the way. And our frustrations and our feelings and our thoughts, and they're not holy in all things. We don't always have the mind of Christ. And here we are saying, man, nobody's perfect. We relegate it right there. It's done. Nobody's perfect. I'm going to mess up, so take it at the grain of salt. And we explain away and justify a standard of love we cannot hope to reach. Let me tell you something. And don't ever forget this. People are going to act like people. Did you know that if someone's driving faster than you, they're a maniac? And they're in front of you going too slow. They're idiots. Doesn't matter who they are. Right? right? And you're never one of those people because you're never slower or faster than the one behind you or in front of you. Right? Right. Sure. You understand what I'm saying here is people act like people. I, got, I finally got freedom from road anger. I used to call it road rage, but I don't, it doesn't last long enough to be rage. Because there's another person doing the same stupid thing, right? Um, And here's what happened. A person was going 60 miles an hour in a 35. Passed me on a double yellow. Fast. It was foggy. A car almost came and hit that car over the hill he was passing on. And I'm thinking, here comes all that, you know, and I thought, he's people, he's going to act like people. People do that. Not everybody, but some do. So he's acting like a person who's not perfect. What would I expect? When someone disappoint you? They're people. Did you expect them to be God? No! But we do. But not ourselves. That's what happens. I think it's kind of funny, because... Human nature is defective and flawed. It is. It just isn't holy. Not human nature. This is the shadow that we live in. We do not dwell inwardly and outwardly in perfect light. The world taught us this We believe it, and it's pretty much real. We have a will that is selfish and sinful. We may have given our lives to Christ, but our will, we're still dragging it to the cross. It just doesn't want to do what God wants it to do. And Even when we're upset, you know for sure you don't want to do what is right. Everybody has a sin aspect. Each person, even if they're in the light, carries some sort of darkness within. So we don't find it hard to understand and believe that we live in shadows rather than the complete light of love God places in us. Even when we hear the truth of God and that it's within us, we do not believe, when it comes down to it, that the old man, the shadow self, really goes away. Even Apostle Paul said it. I prayed three times to get rid of this thorn in the flesh and God did not take it because we needed an aspect of us that reminded us we need God. I got plenty to prove, honey, God. I have thorns, (laughs) not just one. I probably have sledgehammers in the flesh and probably a couple of uh, flaming arrows from people who shot at me from behind because they didn't like me. But i got a lot of stuff to prove that I need God. I already knew it, but I'm thankful for those things in one way. The thorn that is in us makes us ashamed, though. And we're embarrassed. It causes us to hide it. Our thorn, though, is what connects us to each other. Because we all are flawed and broken and we need each other. We hide that thorn, that struggle, that darkness inside, away from this world. And nobody gets to see our pain that it causes. So they can be compassionate. The scribes and Pharisees were not compassionate to the sinners, were they? Why? Because they had to hide their shadow self and walk like they were perfect in law. Makes it a mess. Makes it a big mess. And Jesus was coming up against that. It's a no wonder they didn't like Him. He was trying to expose their thorns. Here's what happens though. When we begin to acknowledge those things, we wish we could talk to somebody about it. If someone just listen, not judge us, And and we would not have any fear talking about. Maybe then, maybe I'd get some freedom from it. But instead, we lock ourselves in, and that thing that we can't talk about to anybody is locked in there because we're so afraid that people won't like us. They'll judge us. Hold it against us. That's shadow. That fear is darkness. It is not from the light of God. God comes to expose darkness. He's light. And in him is no darkness at all. Not even a shadow of a whisper of a thought that there might one day be darkness in God. Yet we have all these emotional defenses and mindsets that have left us broken, wounded, tainted, Believing that the gospel was only for certain people at certain times, or the power of the Holy Spirit could only work through people who have enough faith or enough whatever. We come to the gospel and hear the good news of the kingdom, and it's all good news. There is no bad news in the gospel, except for the devil, and he's darkness. There is no bad news in the Gospel. It's all good. And and we hear that and we go, can't anything be all good? Can't be. Because we've so accustomed ourselves to being disappointed that we expect God's going to do the same. We see potential for loss, brokenness, rejection, even in the light of perfect love and freedom. we see the grace of God. And rather than going, "All right, I'm changed, I'm a new person, we begin to question whether it's really for me or not. It's an amazing grace, but I don't know if I get it or not. And and besides, you don't know what I've done. Well, God knows what you've done. He does. And He's still offering the grace freely on the cross. And so we begin to question grace we begin to wonder well maybe i'm entitled to it because after all god said it it's mine and i can sin all i want and i'm entitled to grace and i'll sin some more and get more grace and we abuse grace maybe that's how you seek grace maybe like some people you argue that it's not even necessary why do I need grace? I just keep the law. and Besides, God probably doesn't care anyway. He loves everybody. Sometimes we question whether grace really exists. Well, if it existed, why did this happen? If God's love is real, why does He allow bad things to happen in my life? Why do I suffer? Why is there shadows and darkness if God's a God of light and love? We think like this. And we begin to think to ourselves, well, I, I really don't want it anyway. Don't really need grace. I'm just going to live in it and then I die. Whatever happens, happens. There's people who think like that. People ignore grace. They avoid it. They deny it. They logically try to explain it away. They think there's a limited supply of grace. That you get so much and then you're done. You used it all up. <laughs> or sometimes we wonder if the Jewish community gets the big portion and we just get some leftovers. They would like us to think that. But they don't have leftovers. They want it all. So, grace then, according to them, is theirs, not ours. Wow. You know, with all this in mind, have you ever experienced a time in your life where you needed grace and didn't get it? I was 16 years old. Driving dad's car to school every now and then. And... uh, One day it was raining, and I asked if I could drive the car. And he said, yep, be fine. Just make sure you don't go pick up the Sanders boys. I got in the car. Rain coming down really hard. Half a block away from the Sanders house on the way to school. And I'm thinking, well, if they just come out, I haven't really gone to pick them up. Because I'm not going to turn and go in their street. They'll just come out the back door to where I am. And so I honked the horn, and they got in. We went to school. This is where the story gets a little peculiar. Parked in the parking lot, and we sat in there smoking cigarettes. A few minutes later, my dad comes by, driving a school bus. That's the peculiar part. My dad is driving a school bus, and he was a minister too. It's almost like deja vu. And I thought, I hope he didn't see us. Because if he saw us, he would know I took those Sanders boys to school. And uh, I prayed, and you know, um, while we were in the car. Oh, I hope he didn't see us. I forgot he drove the bus. Don't know how I forgot. We got out of the car and I realized I'd let the headlights on. Parked there. So I said i got to shut the headlights off and that's the only car in the parking lot with the headlights on. Dad saw me. No question. All morning at school, I'm going, oh, this is not good. I violated his trust. I've done everything wrong. What can I do? And like the prodigal son, I began to rehearse my lines. You know, Dad... Uh, you told me not to, and I did, but it was raining, and I felt really bad. I didn't go to their house, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, he's going to say I went slow by their house, and that's the same thing. So I said I better cut that line out, you know. And I'm trying to think of all these excuses and reasons, and uh, and uh, <laughs> I knew he knew. I got home after school. I was scared, and I should have been, because my dad, when he is. Upset, it was not a kind person. And I walked in and he sat in his armchair. And I looked at him and said, Dad, this morning you asked me not to get the Sanders boys. And in the rain I did. And I didn't do what you asked me to do. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Sounds like the prodigal, right? Coming home, realizing, you know, ask for forgiveness you shall receive... My dad said, no, I will not. Not only did I go to the school and see you parked in there smoke with those boys, but you had the lights on. I had to go back again to check to see if you had shut them off so I wouldn't have to come and charge the car on a battery you ran down. No, I will not forgive you. And I went, that's not how it's supposed to work. i got a shadow rather than Grace. Needless to say, I didn't get to drive for a while. I didn't even get to talk to the Sanders family on the phone for a while. But I experienced the shadow of someone who's upset and angry. And not acting out of grace and compassion over someone who's repentant, though it was a, I don't want to be in trouble, repent. Repent. I didn't get grace. Months, matter of fact, years went by. And I had a chance to preach, and I told that story in front of my dad. After the service, he came up to me. You know what he said? He said, I think you got the message that day. I bet you did. I think you understood what I'm saying is that what your father says, he does for your own good. And you didn't trust me to do things for your own good. I had multiple reasons for you not to get those boys. And you didn't listen. You wanted your way, not mine. And that's why he wouldn't forgive me. But let me tell you something. The prodigal son asks his father for a favor. His father grants it. And his son throws it in his face by ruining the gift Partying, living recklessly, as the older brother says, with prostitutes. He knows the stories that come back. And he's out of money. Wastes his father's hard-earned income and his own inheritance. Basically, considered to be dead. He understood a little bit about what it's like to be in bondage. What do I mean by that? Because in the time when he was out of money, listen to this, and and don't miss this part of the story either. He had plenty of friends as long as he was throwing the party. A lot of people. Spent it like crazy. And it says, when he ran out, nobody gave him anything. Nobody reached out to him. He didn't have friends. He had people he bought off to be friends. He didn't have anything genuine. So he thought money would make him happy by surrounding himself with people, but they didn't want him. They wanted what he had. The same way that he treated his father. They treated him. I want what you got, but not you. And that's how we pray sometimes. God, I want your grace, but I don't need you. I just need forgiven and into your kingdom. I don't need this relationship stuff. I don't need that. I just want, you know, to not have any consequences over my mess-ups. And you tell me I'm a good person and you love me and I'm okay. On the Seder plate, on Palm Sunday, there's going to be romaine lettuce. It is to remind us of the bondage. Why? Because when Israel first went... To Egypt. They got the best land. And they prospered and were under favor. And it was very, very sweet to avoid the famine. They lived very well. But after a few years, things got to be very bitter. And Romaine starts off sweet, but ends up bitter. Prodigal son, living is up sweet. Everything's great in life, man. I got money. Everything's great. As soon as you're broke, life stinks. I feel the same way when I'm broke. Life stinks. If i got a few dollars in my pocket, life's okay. That was my, uh, shall we say, valuation, whether life was good or not, if I had a couple dollars in my pocket. If I didn't, life was horrible. But here he is. Life now stinks once it was sweet, like the romaine becoming bitter. It's because he's in bondage to the wrong thing. When you're in bondage to the wrong thing, it becomes bitter. When you become in bondage to Jesus Christ, it becomes sweeter. Not bitter. It's the other way around. It seems hard at first because you have to die to self and get rid of the stuff that you think is important to you because you're so used to being in the wrong bondage. Here's how this works. Um Have you ever tried to find a reasonable tasting substitute for sugar? You can find all sorts of stuff, but it doesn't. Every one of them have a weird aftertaste. Sugar doesn't have that aftertaste. It just doesn't. They've got agave now, stevia, truvia, Coconut palm leaf sugar, saw that. Turbina sugar. I'm thinking, wow, maybe one of these will be healthy. Then there's this other one that says, low glycemic, no calories, has good nutrients. Monk fruit sugar. And I thought, hey, let me read the reviews on this. And you know what it says? You think it says there's no aftertaste? There is an aftertaste. Of course, there is. They all leave a bitter aftertaste except what's real. Scribes and Pharisees are bitter. Jesus is not bitter at all. Not toward the tax collectors, not toward the scribes and Pharisees. He loves them. He's not bitter at them at all. He gets angry at them for being hard hearted and stubborn, but he is not bitter. Because Jesus Christ is real. He walks in complete light. He is shadowless. The only thing that's real is God in this world. Everything else is a shadow. It leaves a bitter aftertaste in your mouth, in your heart, in your life. The defenses and the things that try to protect ourselves... And the false love from any source but God leaves bitter aftertaste. Love. God's love has no shadow. Prodigal son thinks another life's going to have a better taste than life with his father. Be sweeter. After the party is over and he starts coming home, he does his ritual. He considers that his father's servants live better than he does, trying to feed carob pods to hogs. As a son, he hadn't made in his father's house, but he realizes he's not a son anymore because he asked for the inheritance, and so he works out his prayer and goes home. He knows. He's not worthy. He knows this. Listen to me. When you mess up, you know you messed up, and you think you deserve something for it. Because that's how darkness thinks. That's how shadows think. We're so used to condemnation and rejection when we mess up, that we don't know what it's like to mess up and be accepted to be welcomed, to get another chance and not feel judged. We don't know what that's like in this world. Only God offers that. One of the things I love about Celebrate Recovery is it's a judgment-free zone. You can be yourself. And even if it's a mess-up, you're loved. The son in the story has ruined the opportunity to be in the family by what he did. Listen, this is important. He's okay with being a servant. He's okay being a slave. Now, Before he didn't even want to be in his father's house as a son. Now he's okay to be a slave. He's okay to be in bondage to the right thing. He's relegated to the fact that he'll be a servant the rest of his life. He expects nothing, not even his brother, to care for him. But maybe his father will allow him to be the servant. And it's in shame, dishonor, that he asks for that title. I know you're my dad, but I'm not your son anymore. I'll be your servant. There is no honor. This is what happens when you waste what God gives you, right? You're not worthy of being God's presence. I've heard people say, you messed up your blessing, you don't get another chance with God. I've heard that. There's so many people who've made mistakes in public ministries that people will cast cast them away and judge them and never listen to them again because they made a mistake. Or maybe two. Or twenty. Or however many. Because after all, they threw away the blessing of God. The sweet has become bitter. The pain replaces what used to be Joy. There's no turnaround. It's too late. You wasted your inheritance with God. So how could you ever become a part of the family again? This is darkness. This is shadow thinking. And this is what this story is about. is exposing how you and I think in the shadows rather than in the light. Since you blew the family portion, which was yours, you're not family. (laughs) must be true. That's what's supposed to happen. That was societal expectation. It was the brother who stayed at home's expectation. The younger son understands things from the older son's perspective. When the older son is angry and says, your son comes home after wasting your money with harlots and you're throwing him a party? And the younger son's going... Yeah, Dad, this ain't right. I didn't earn a party by my behavior. I didn't earn a fatted calf and the best ring and best robe in your whole collection and your authority on my hand by what I did. How can you do that? Why would you do that? You you must have lost your mind. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe the father knew something that the kids in the house didn't know. The younger son and the older son raised in the same family. That's why the younger son knew he was not welcome as a son, but as a servant, maybe. And when the father comes to the older son, he does not yet know that the son who comes home has not asked to be family, but to be a servant. He doesn't get to hear this younger son's story. He said, I didn't ask to be back in the family. I asked to serve you and everybody else. This was not my choice. I chose to be a servant. And he put a ring on my finger. And made me an authority with him. It's enough, he said. It would have been enough to be in my father's house and under servant's care and pay. It's better than what I have exposed myself to in my life. When we become destitute, everything else looks better. Depression can make us make some really tough choices that are bad, but seem better, as long as it's different. Food, clothing, and shelter look tempting when you don't have it. Almost would sell your soul for it in some places, like... Esau sold his birthright for a morsel of food I know that I could not expect a hero's welcome when I was destitute and I don't think this boy in this story I don't think he's walking up to his father going give me a hero's welcome because all he says is I just want to serve He left not wanting to serve anything but Himself. And now He comes back saying, just let me serve. Do you see the difference? Scribes and Pharisees, you must serve yourself. Jesus is serving the sinners, not Himself. Yeah, My dad did not give me a hero's welcome that day when I came home after driving a car in the rain. Yet He gradually welcomed me home when He saw the genuine change in my life and that I got the story. But I'm telling you this. God is not asking for genuine change to receive you. He's always just waiting for you to come home. That's enough for Him. Come home. Here's the problem. is We think there has to be something we got in our hands to offer. We don't have it. There's nothing we can give God for ourselves, our heart, our life. And say, God, it's not worth much, but it's all I got. Do you want it? I don't seem to know what to do with it. Maybe you can do something with it. Maybe you can fix it. Clean it up. Clean me up. Make my life valuable. Maybe you can do something... And this light, this beautiful sunlight, they were expecting to reject this with some darkness, says, I love you. You're my son. No matter what you do or how you act, you're my son. And if you're my son, you're mine. And my light will shine on you no matter the darkness you drag into your life. The question I have for you, and that we're going to explore deeper next week, is this. If you are that prodigal son returning knowing what he knew, what would you say when your father said to you, let's celebrate you! I'm not shadowless. Far from it. That's my response. I'm not as good as you think I am to throw a party. And he says, it's not about you, son. It's about me as your father. And what kind of father do you think I am? And who do you think I am as your father? Who do you think I am? Do you think I got shadows? If you do, that's on you. Because I don't. And so many people keep putting them on God and they need to take them off. Because all He is is light and love to you. And there is no darkness, bitterness, or bad days with Him toward you. Do you understand that? Can you receive that without ever having experienced it anywhere else in the earth? Can you? If you can, you get it all. And If you can't, you still get it all. But you're going to have trouble receiving it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Your Word is yes. And in Jesus Christ, Your promises are fulfilled. And yes, yes, yes. 100% yes. And we just keep looking for the nail. Maybe not. But it's always yes. And so, Heavenly Father, I'm asking this very day. If any of us here keep thinking that we're just not good enough, not worthy enough, Heavenly Father, it's not about what we did or didn't do. It's whose we belong to. And if we belong to You, then everything about us is welcome in Your house. So God, help us to come before You and say, I want to be there, even if it's just as a servant. Because You love without regard to who I am, but in respect of who I am, love me the same. Heavenly Father, I ask that as we contemplate these things that we would learn what it's like to come home. Amen.